Hey, Kate. Yeah? Do we give legal advice on this podcast? Oh, gosh, no. Hostile work environment. Exactly. Hey, inappropriate workplace topic. Hostile work environment. Shut up. I'm the human resources director. Little Miss Hostile Work Environment. Hello, welcome to the Hostile Work Environment podcast. My name is Mark Alifans. I'm here with Kate Bischoff, and we are not doing our regularly scheduled episode today. If you are no, here you for guys... episode four, that's going to come out like Thursday, I think. Yeah, you guys are going to have to wait for our poop and fart jokes for just another couple of days because we had breaking news. Breaking news. That's my attempt at a news Um The people under like, 35 probably won't know what that reference is to um we're, what are we here to talk about today kate we're here to talk about women's soccer and a decision that came out friday evening in the equal pay act case of alex morgan et al versus the united states soccer federation something i know is near and dear to your heart it, it is and i you know we've been waiting for this for a while if you uh want to go back to the archives of the podcast episode 45 has a discussion about some an earlier version of this case actually where where hope solo was the named plaintiff mm -hmm. and i don't remember the exact maneuvering that happened but i don't know if it's the exact same case or just that the the named plaintiffs in the class have switched or or what but we did talk about the basics of this two years ago uh dennis and i did uh, uh and that might be a worthy episode to go back and listen to first but yeah uh as kate says we're a soccer loving podcast <laughs> yes i mean so, i've met professional soccer players so. yeah I, I mean i hound them on airplanes when i happen to be on the same <laughs> plane with them so i can say that too are you on a charter flight with them though mark i oh well you know <laughs> funny like that's a total side issue even even for major league soccer they don't fly charter on most of their flights they fly uh -huh. They fly just regular commercial flights. Commercial. So when I go to watch the Timbers play in other cities, there have been two or three times now where I have flown on the same flight as the team. Well, that's very cool. But I bring up the charter flight reason because that yes, is know. a big part of this case, which I find hilarious. But let's start with the equal pay stuff. Let's start with the equal pay stuff. Um, I am, just so you know, a huge supporter of women's soccer. We have the Portland Thorns here. Uh, in Portland, I'm wearing my Portland shirt. I put my scarf up on the wall, one of my, like, eight thorn scarves that I own. <laughs> um, and between the two of us, it's a sport that we both really enjoy and where we can get some of that overlap between employment <laughs> law and soccer. It's like, this is our thing. Okay, so I wanted to start off with a few points before we get into the actual discussion of this case about some things that that we believe mm -hmm. going into this conversation okay we believe that women deserve to be paid equally to men absolutely these aren't very controversial things we believe but i just <laughs> i want to lay this out because we're going to to hit this a little dispassionately as we go through it and I want to let you know where emotionally we are heading into this and coming out of it. So mm -hmm. uh, I think we both agree that women in U.S. soccer have historically been underpaid compared to the men. Historically, yes. And that women in U.S. soccer continue to be underpaid relative to the men, especially when you factor in relative success. Absolutely. I mean, I own women's soccer stuff like t-shirts and shorts and stuff i do not own the men's stuff because the men as a whole suck they can't even make it to the world <laughs> cup right so right. let's like we'll get into that we'll get into that later <laughs> but um you know i thought just laying those three points out that you know I i'm at thorns games my daughter walked out with Megan Klingenberg holding her hand last season, where we are all there screaming equal pay during the games in light of this lawsuit. Mm -hmm. So the fact that the lawsuit didn't go in their favor, spoiler alert, is something that caught us a little off guard and is worthy of this discussion. And so I thought moving in before we get into the specific legal claims, 
I thought it would be good just to take a second to look at the sources of the unequal pay or unequal pay. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. some of them are just basic because they're true all over, right? Just right. straight up, long-standing societal discrimination. Yes. Every industry. Yes. And and if you break it down by race and gender, it's even more disparate. Like we're in 50 cent ranges for uh, Latina women and where for white women, it's like between 80, 79 and 80 cents on the dollar. If you break it down by those races, it's even worse. So yes, straight up right. longstanding societal discrimination. Right. Sexism and discrimination in sports themselves. Oh, hells to the yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, if you look at winnings, even in individual sports, I mean, I think tennis is where you get the closest mm -hmm. to some I, parody. Mm -hmm. But even uh, as fans, uh, though, I mean, as fans, women had to have Alyssa Milano design us clothes in order to be NFL fans so that we can wear clothes that were designed for women and not like pink and fluffy stuff, but like stuff that was cut for a woman. So, right. Absolutely. Um, there's a gap in revenue generation worldwide, mm -hmm. right? Which speaks to fans and culture not supporting women's sports as much as men's sports, in part mm -hmm. because historically women haven't had as many sports to play and haven't been in front of his, the crowd. So it takes some time to catch up, but hello, like it's been a while now, like we should catch up. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there are arguments, and I'm not trying to, to say that I believe this in any way because I absolutely do not, but there are arguments out there, and I'm sure maybe even in response to this podcast we'll hear some of them, that the level of skill in play simply isn't the same and that women are less skilled, less interesting to watch. And that's why, you know, in the NWSL over the last several years, the average attendance is only 5,000, whereas in MLS it's double or triple that. Well. In one particular sport, in my opinion, uh, women's hockey is much more interesting to watch than men's hockey. Now, this is also in my part because I have spent a lot of time on the NHL concussion cases and reading medical records. And so I have a hard time with the fighting and the checking and all that kind of stuff. But if you watch a, a NCAA team like the Minnesota Gophers play women's hockey, that is so fast and so exciting. I have a hard time with this. This arguments about skill and pay overall because i think it's more interesting i do too i actually there are differences mm -hmm. but that doesn't that doesn't speak to the quality or professionalism in any way and when i go to a thorns match and i go to almost all of them i find that the game on the field especially as a new soccer fan was far more accessible to me than the men's game there was less histrionics. They were less flopping. <laughs> there was a lot. It was a much more mature game. It was a much more tactical game. No, are it wasn't saying, as fast. Are you saying that the women had less drama than the men? By a mile. <laughs> there, there actually may be a little bit more of that. And like that gap is narrowing over time, which in some <laughs> ways I actually kind of like. But um, it's a much more tactical game where you can see the play develop you can understand as a fan what everybody on the field is doing uh it's not because it's less complex it's because it's more structured and mm -hmm. i find that much more accessible and and interesting for me to watch as a relative soccer newbie i can't explain it, it, you know i can't get out there and say i'm some sort of soccer expert but uh for me i go to a lot of games uh there's no to my mind there's no argument to say that one is better than the other. They're just different. Mm -hmm. All right. So with that, all of that kind of prologue out of the way, let's talk about the case. Okay. All right. Do we want to, let's start with what legal claims were brought. We've got two legal claims. We have Equal Pay Act claim for discriminatory pay, and that dovetails with Title Seven. So they have Equal Pay, yeah. the discriminatory pay, which is, falls under both of those statutes. And then we have discriminatory working conditions under Title VII, which deals with the turf that they play on and the kinds of travel that they actually travel with. So those are the claims that this opinion covers. Yes. Um, and I don't think we'll, 
will hide the ball on this. The court at this point, so both sides filed for summary judgment, saying that okay. we basically agree on all the facts that are out there so that this case can be decided as a matter of law. And both sides made cross motions for summary judgment. And mm -hmm. in the end, the judge, who I think I wrote this down here somewhere. I can't remember Foster. where in my notes. Yes, he's about he's about 78 years old. He's a Bush one appointee. And this is in the Central District of California, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, he found uh, against the women on pretty much most of it. So on the equal pay claims, which were the big claims, both under the Equal Pay Act and Title VII, he found against them saying that there was not sufficient evidence to demonstrate that they were paid less. And then on the working conditions, he found uh, against the women when it came to the playing surfaces. Now, this is one area where we'll get to very small amount later, but I, I think we thought that we both thought that rationale was pretty BS. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then uh, they, he did find uh, not in favor of summary judgment in favor of the women on the travel, but enough that it can go to trial. Yes. The so only there is a dispute of fact. Yeah, the only true triable issue here is whether or not giving the boys more charter flights because of their poor morale was discriminatory. Right. So we'll we'll touch on that briefly, but the bulk I think of what we want to talk about here is equal pay. Mm -hmm. And so let's get into the case. So, let's kind of define the players here. So we've got the USWNT, US Women's National Team. We might just call them the Women's National Team. Okay. We've got the men's mm -hmm. national team, the USMNT. We have the US Soccer Federation, also known as USSF, that employs both the men and the women's teams, which is very interesting that they have the same employer. And the only reason why this case can even go yeah. at all in the way that it did. Yep. All right. Then we have the unions. And of course, they made the unions like these super long names that are acronyms that are simply not pronounceable. So we have the U.S. Women's National Soccer Teams Player Association, the WNTPA. <laughs> yes. And as if that's not bad enough, we have the U.S. National Soccer Team Players Association, UNTPA. Yeah, but notice how men is not in their title. They're right. just the national team. They're just the national team. Yeah. Noticed. Mm -hmm. So noticed. Okay. So. Let's get into the equal pay claim. So here are the facts. Uh, and again, I pared this down because there's like 18 pages of facts. Um, and so what I'm really summarizing here is the most recent comparison between mm -hmm. the men's contract and the women's contract. And I only have the detail that's in here. So I, it's not an apples to apples in every part. No. But we get the gist. So I'm going to start with the men because it's actually quicker and easier to start there, and then we'll compare what the women were getting in their contract uh, afterwards. So the men have what's known as a pay-to-play contract. So they get no salary. They get no benefits. They get no compensation unless they participate in a training camp or make a particular roster. So there's no minimum commitment of number of players. Okay. okay. Now, during the most recent agreement, the men were to make bonuses, most of where their pay is coming from, for the men's national team, based on playing and performing well in games. Mm -hmm. So if it's a friendly, so international games that don't count towards like the World Cup or a real tournament with a prize, they're friendlies. For a friendly, if the men's team won, each player would be paid $17,625 for a win, $8,100 uh, for a tie, and $5,000 for a loss. I would love to get mm -hmm. paid $5,000 every time I lose something. Um, <laughs> well, and for 90 minutes. For 90 minutes a time, right. <laughs> um, so, so just keep that those numbers. So it's about $17,500, $8,100, and $5,000 in the back of your mind as we start to get into the women here in just a second, uh, I'll note for the World Cup under the most recent agreement, and let's note, they didn't make any of these because they suck. <laughs> to, if they qualified for the World Cup, they'd have $2.5 million distributed to the player pool. 
they'd if they made it to the semifinals of the World Cup, that would be five point six million dollars. I believe additional five point six million dollars mm-hmm. distributed to the pool. And if they won the World Cup, they'd get uh, an additional nine point three seven five million dollars distributed to the pool. And how many players are in the pool? So you know? it ranges, but and, and it didn't get into that in a whole lot of detail in the opinion. For the men, you know, I don't know the exact number, but it's going to be somewhere around 20 to 25 is my guess. Okay. Right, because it's anybody, right, so the pool there is everybody they bring to the World Cup. So, right, it's 11 players who play in a game. They usually have, you know, eight or nine. Uh, actually, can they go more than 18 in the World Cup? I don't think they can go more than 18 on the actual roster that day. So then you're going to have three to five, maybe more alternates who go mm-hmm. with you. So let's let's call it 20 to 22, at least for the World Cup, in terms of who they carry. And I believe right. those... And this is just the money that goes to the pool, how they divide up the pool. It's not divided equally amongst the players, right? I don't, I don't believe it is, but this, this opinion did not get into any of that. Okay. All right. So that's the men. Uh, there's a lot less detail about about their most recent contract in the opinion uh, than for the women. Now let's talk about the women. Now they signed a contract in 2017. It includes 20 contracted players who receive a base salary of $100,000, right? So we said the men have this pay to play and what the women bargained is a little different in terms of more guaranteed compensation, less variable compensation less performance-based compensation so so their their floor is a lot higher but their ceiling is a lot lower so they've kind of taken a moderated view in terms of how they negotiated this okay this also guarantees the nwsl salaries right so the national women's soccer league for u.s players on the national team who play in the nwsl they get a guaranteed salary through ussf for playing in the nwsl so those were in two tiers of 62,500 or 67,500. That's in addition to their 100 plus thousand dollars salary they get for being on the national team. Okay. Then they get okay. game bonuses. Now, remember the men were around 17,000, 8,000 and 5,000 for friendlies. For friendlies, the women, if they play teams ranked 1 through 4, so that would be like the top 4 teams in the world. They would like the thorns. No, 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 no. National teams. Oh, Na- national no, the, teams. The, okay. the, the, the thorns are wonderful. Thank you. But we're only talking <laughs> international play right now. So this is the okay. United States of America plays Mexico or whatever team. Okay. okay? So if that okay. team in the world rankings is ranked one through four, which only really leaves it to three teams because the U S is always ranked somewhere one through four. One. Um, they get $8,500 a player per win and 1750 for a tie. Okay, so we had 17, 8, and 5 for a loss for the men. Here it's 8,500, 1,750, and nothing. Okay, if it's teams ranked 5 through 8, it's $6,500 for a win, 1,250 for a tie, nothing for a loss. And if it's teams ranked 9 or higher in the world, or lower, 9 or lower in the world, uh, they get $5,250 for a win, nothing for a tie, nothing for a loss. Okay. Okay. For the World Cup. They get $3,000 for a win, $500 for a tie for every for uh, World Cup, uh, each World Cup game. And I don't know if that includes qualifiers or not or how that works. Right. And usually this is within, they get this regardless of what, where they are in the, the tier, right? So like if in their, when they're in the group, they get the group games. And when they get out of the group, even if they're in the last, the winning game, they're still getting the base 3000 for the win of the big game, but then there might be more on top of it. Right? Yes, I believe that's okay. correct. And and I believe that some of these, and I don't know, because World Cup qualifying, for example, is not a friendly. So there's some additional compensation for the qualifying matches as well. I just, I, it, I didn't get into that level of detail breaking this down. They I'm also... Really I'm not in compensation. No. Right. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, and we love all of you in compensation for helping to do that for us. Yes. Um, qualifying bonus for making the World Cup is 37500 
uh, and then there's a roster bonus if they make the roster in the World Cup of 37,500 because there that could be a distinction that they might have some players who are part of the qualifying who don't make the roster mm-hmm. for the actual World Cup. So uh, they get at least half of that money that they would have gotten otherwise. Uh, if they win the World Cup, they make $110,000. Second place, they all get $50,000. Third place, they get $25,000. Then post-World Cup tour, the, they get so if they win the World Cup and they go on tour, mm-hmm. uh, they get payments ranging from two hundred fifty thousand to three hundred fifty thousand. And I'm not sure how that's apportioned between players. And uh, you know, I assume each player gets at least that much. But then, how much does each one get? There must be some formula that I, I haven't seen here. Right, and Megan Rapinoe gets a lot more than the person who's warm in the bench for most of the game. Right, but Maybe. that person's still making two fifty. Yep. Two fifty k. So. Yep. Right, And then the women actually also have a second tournament that the men don't have, which is the Olympics. Because in the men's game, the Olympics tournament is a U23. And for women, it's for anyone. So, so under 23 for men? Yes. Okay. And I think maybe each team gets to have three people older. But for the most part, most of the men on the U.S. men's national team don't get to play in the Olympics. So it's an, it's an opportunity. It's, it's a, it's a, an opportunity for more play and more money that the women have that the men actually don't have in that particular instance. So um, the women can put together a dream team, but the men cannot. can't necessarily. Okay. Correct. So Olympics qualifying bonus uh, is $3,000 a win, 500 a tie. If they make the gold medal, it's $100,000. Silver medal, 55500 Bronze medal, 25000 And again, post-Olympic tour, payments ranging from 200000 to $300,000. Also, the players get a one-time signing bonus of $230,000. Okay? Mm-hmm. They also get a ticket revenue share of $1.50 per ticket. I believe that's for everybody is split, not like per yeah. per person, right? Right. So, um, Otherwise, tickets would be really expensive. Right. Uh, then they also get a $5,000 bonus for first place in the She Believes tournament or the Four Nations tournament. And then they actually get benefits that are also not included at all in the men's bargaining agreement. So they get severance. doesn't say how much. They get injury protection. They get health, dental, and vision. They get pregnancy pay. Guaranteed rest time, child care assistance, partnership bonuses for exceeding marketing revenue targets, and payment for USSF commercial use of player like this. There are a few other small things in there that I'm not going to list out. But um, again, most of these benefits that I'm listing here are not included in the men's contracts. So we list that out, and there are certain areas where the women clearly have more opportunity than the men to earn the per game or per win or per tie or per loss amounts, certainly there's a wide, wide gap between those. You know, the court is now taking this information and kind of crunching it based on how the lawyers presented it to to try to come to a decision as to whether the women are paid equally or not. You know, like I said earlier, the basic structure here is that there are, well, there are two completely different structures of pay. And one of the questions we'll get into in a little bit here is how do you even compare what is effectively apples and oranges when it comes to pay? It's it's very difficult to get there. And part of what I want to talk about or with you once we get through kind of the court's rationale is, is how, what even is equal pay when we talk about this? Because there's lots of different ways you can slice it. But let's let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the court first and then then i'm gonna like i'm gonna let you loose (laughs) not that you can't talk whenever you want to talk but uh, i'm just reciting facts and then then kate unleashed (laughs) all right so the court took a look at in order to answer this question of what is equal pay and what's not equal pay they looked at how many games were played and what the average revenue per player per game was or for per team per game actually wasn't per player and that's important so during the relevant time period that we're talking about 
For each game played, the women made $8,000 more per game as a team than the men did. Per the court. Okay? The way they got mm -hmm. there was to say the men played 87 games during that time frame and earned $18.5 million, which is $212,639 212, a game. The women played 111 games and earned $24.5 million, which averages to $220,747 per game. So the average per game for the women was just more than $8,000 more per match played. And this is the fact that the court hangs the opinion on. Pointing out also, and this is another thing we're going to get into, the lawyering, okay, that <laughs> the plaintiffs never argued that these figures were skewed by the number of players on each team. So that's not a per-player average. It's a per-team average per game. So there could have been a lot more that the women could have said to this, potentially, if they talked about the number of players and what the distribution of that pay is amongst the players. Uh, and the court did not consider it. All right, the court did consider the plaintiff's other evidence of discrimination. Okay, so the plaintiffs, that's the women here, argue that discrimination is clear because the bonuses paid were lower. Okay, right? Objectively mm -hmm. speaking, that is 1,000% true. They are effectively making less than half on a per-game bonus basis compared to the men. But the court says no. That's, I mean, yes, that's true. But when the Equal Pay Act looks at how you define compensation, it includes everything you get. So you can't just take one piece of it, the bonuses, and compare those to each other. You have to look at the overall compensation. So we also have to factor in the value of the benefits and all of the guaranteed compensation, things that the women are getting that the men aren't. And then we can look at that. So the court rejects their argument about the bonuses for the reason that I just said, uh, right. which is that it's overall compensation, not piecemeal. Uh, and really, they highlighted, or he highlighted, the fact that the women chose, as a bargaining unit, and we'll talk about that coming up, more guaranteed compensation at the cost of some upside potential in terms of higher bonuses. Okay. The plaintiffs also argued that because they demonstrated that women would have made more overall under the men's collective bargaining agreement, that it wasn't equal. Sounds like a pretty good argument, right? Mm -hmm. if, we, if we got the same deal that the men had, we would have made a lot more. Right. Right. The defendants pointed out, so the representing USSF pointed out, though, that the men would have made more under the women's CBA than they would have under their own. Okay. <laughs> now, this is a place where the court doesn't get into this and finds this a compelling argument. I don't find this a particularly compelling nope. argument because it ignores something really important, another point we're going to get into, which is the relative success of the teams. Mm -hmm. And you want to talk about pay for performance. One team didn't make the World Cup. The other team won the World Cup. And there's only an $8,000 difference between the two. <laughs> and if the men had won the World Cup, what would that difference be? Mm -hmm. So if they performed equally, where so that's a point I want to get into. The court doesn't look at any of that, though. It just looks at the no. time period, does some simple math, and says the women made more than the men. So case closed. All right. The last yeah. argument that the women made, I'm only going to address this for a second, is basically they picked out some quotes from top leaders and figures in U.S. soccer who basically said the women don't make as much. But the court said that those offhand comments don't prove anything. Where's the math? Where's the math? And where's the math that I'm willing to do? Well, right. and this gets down to a question, absolutely, of how much math should the court be doing and how much math should the lawyers be doing? And what are the, right, because the court can really only look at what's been put in front of it by mm -hmm. the parties. 
right? They can go off and do their own work, but they typically don't. They're typically going to rely on the lawyering. And then they're going to say which one of these arguments being made is more persuasive mm-hmm. based on the law. So, And based upon the expert reports that we're using to say that this is the right math we're going to be using. Okay. So we'll, we'll skip ahead to the, to the travel and field conditions in a little bit. But let's just talk about equal pay for the moment. Mm-hmm. Based on these facts, Kate, was the court's decision wrong? So I'm not sure the analysis doesn't make sense. I think the analysis that they use makes sense. However, it's not the math I would have used, but the math I would have used may have been more speculative and then not necessarily persuasive because what I would have done is I would have taken the average female player and I would have run her through the men's CBA and run her through the women's CBA and showed that there's a difference based upon the what we get at the end of it so if we if women won the world cup and we ran through the men's math she would have received so much more money, right? So, but she didn't actually do that. She didn't actually earn that, right? Because that's not actually what happened. So the court looked at what actually happened, the concrete evidence of what happened, and then said the women played 111 games. They earned $24.5 million, So let's divide that, and we get $220,747 per game. But they... I think the argument that the women were trying to bring forth was that, look at these two pieces of collective bargaining agreements result in different pay based upon how we would have, how we would have performed if we applied it to each way, each CBA. And that was not persuasive to the court because they wanted actual earnings. And, I agree with you a a thousand percent. And I think that the looking at what was actually made is the simple, most basic way to go at this. But it is not an actual look for me at whether there was pay equality between the two agreements. Where Mm -hmm. I want to look between the two agreements, if I'm doing this math, is I'm going to look at different levels of performance. So what happens if both teams lose every game? Who comes out ahead? What happens if each team wins half of their games? Who comes out Mm -hmm. ahead? What happens if each team qualifies for the World Cup and doesn't make it past the group stage? What happens if each team makes it to the semifinals? What happens if each team wins? And look at it on a like-for-like basis. And my guess Mm -hmm. is if you do that, at certain levels, at the lower levels of performance, the women are going to come out way ahead because the men Mm -hmm. will get virtually nothing except for that $5,000 for losing every friendly, which. (laughs) but still the women would still have their guarantees and their benefits that the men aren't getting. Okay. But the higher you go up on that performance scale, the men close that gap and then they exceed it. And the gap widens on the other side. That's my guess. I haven't done that math, but that's what makes sense based on what I see here. And so Mm -hmm. the real question is at, at various levels of performance, is there overall equality and i don't even know how you answer that if one's better at one level and one's better at another level right in the end though what i can say and i think this is clear is that if the women do everything possible to win every game and the men do the same the women will make far less money yes absolutely and that to me is really compelling because what the court's analysis doesn't factor in is the fact that the women are awesome and the men totally suck. <laughs> yes. I'm sure they're all very nice people and very good soccer players, but as mm-hmm. a national team, they haven't exactly done much. No. So, so that's well, where... Sorry, go ahead. And I'm, I'm frustrated by this in that I, when I watch the two different, you know, the, the men's national team and the women's national team, I have been very fortunate that I've been living overseas during World Cup games, and so I got... Being overseas during World Cup is a much different experience than being in the U.S., where we virtually ignore it, except for this last time with the women. But it is 
it is such a big deal that the idea that you don't go through the various different success rates should would yield a different result. I, 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 I'm just confused. And it, it might be that the level of speculation there is frustrating to the court, but it's similar to if I was, you know, a, a salesperson and I had a male counterpart. What essentially we're saying is that the male can make 100% on commission. I can make a minimum base plus commission, but because I am doing so much better, if I still make more than him, even though his sales suck and he's making less, that it's okay. I'm not being paid unequally to him because I am simply just making more money because I'm performing so much better than he is. Does that make sense? It, it totally makes sense. And I, I, in the end, it, it, it comes down to a more fundamental question, which we're going to get at here, which is, what is equal pay then? Mm-hmm. Right? When you have different schemes of paying people who do effectively the same thing, obviously, there's going to be circumstances where same performance leads to different outcomes. So if, if that's the case, can it ever actually be equal as the law is requiring if they have different setups and different ways of being paid based on different performance outcomes some of which put them ahead some of which put them behind some of which put them way behind can any of those ever actually be equal i think the answer is i don't care it still has to be (laughs) what well the results have to be that it's equal pay right Right. Because there's a in the grand scheme of you know the powers of law, it starts with contract, regulation, law, constitution, and a CBA is just a contract. And so, if I negotiated shittily for myself, that doesn't mean I get to say, "Well, I can negotiate all of those rights that are in those regulations and those laws." No, the contract is always the you know subject to those laws. Right. So. In other contexts, having different bargaining agreements for different units that do effectively the same thing don't necessarily present a problem because there's n- the bargaining units themselves are not separated based on some protected characteristic. So in most instances, this isn't a problem. But this is a kind of unique circumstance. And this gets into the next big question that I was going to ask, which is, we both agree that the law trumps the bargaining agreements, that there has to be equal pay for doing the same kind of work. Here we have two teams. Now, the, the, there are going to be people out there who argue that they're not actually doing the same work and that men's soccer is far more difficult than women's soccer. And, far, and, and that's all, like, I'm already saying, like, we're just not even going to listen to that. That's right. not, they are soccer players. They are playing soccer for the same employer. They happen to be playing on two separate teams but they are still doing the same thing for the same employer. And they happen to have different bargaining units. Inherently, how can you have equal pay when you have a bargaining unit that is separated based on sex? I believe Justice Thurgood Marshall in Brown v. Board of Education says there cannot be equality if it's separate, right? That's right. And so I don't know how this came up, that these are separate bargaining units based solely on sex. Mm-hmm. But that's where we are. But how, like, what, what really I want to hear more about that this case didn't get into at all is how can you have equal pay between those two things? Now, what the court's trying to say is equal pay is relative, that because in some instances the women make more and in some instances they make less, and they bargained for it, and they unanimously agreed to it, we're going to call this good, especially in light of the fact that they made, on average, $8,000 more per game during the relevant period, right? I think that's not good, because just looking at it, the women were so much more successful. What should have been equality in this sense would have been far more than an $8,000 gap. Well, it also... For starters. Right. It also renews this argument. So if the women have a bad year, can they bring another claim 
because then their pay would be much significantly less than the men. Right. right? I mean, they have to, I mean, I, I don't want to make this suggestion, but if they threw a bunch of games, they would make significantly less and then they would renew this equal pay act claim because now they're making significantly less. Right. Which then gets down to relative performance is what's actually triggering Mm-hmm. The claim, as opposed to actual money made, triggering the claim. I, I just, I have trouble with this working on any level in any of the arguments. <laughs> and I understand the point that the court's making, which is based on the information presented. The women made more, and they haven't made more of an argument otherwise to demonstrate why they are underpaid relative to the men. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they're paid less. For doing the same thing. Yep. And I understand that people will hear me say that and they'll be like, no, they made more average per game. I get that. But if you actually take performance into account, we're nowhere close here. Right. It's it's similar to saying the woman who sold $3 million worth of widgets because she has a guaranteed base salary plus commissions, she made more when he sold $1 million worth of widgets and he gets 100% commission. That's, those aren't the same things. Those aren't apples to apples. And so you have to, you have to figure out how to compare those two overall. Because if the, in my widget scenario, if the woman was paid on 100% commission, she would have made significantly more. And I think in a lot of the equal pay, you know, court opinions out there, she would win that argument. I think that's right. Where this actually makes this kind of unique is that in most circumstances, you're not going to have that problem because in most circumstances, you're going to have people in the same unit or effectively, whether they're union or not, similarly situated people who earn based on the same criteria, Mm -hmm. the same outline in the same company for the same employer for the same work is almost, again, there's cases out there, obviously, but it's usually going to be a circumstance where you're comparing apples to apples at least. That's not this. And what makes it unique is that the bargaining units are separated based on a protected characteristic. And that, that to me is fascinating. And it's an undeveloped area of the law, obviously, that how does that jive with equal pay? And I just don't see how you can, you can align the two. Yeah. And it, it, make, it makes this case less precedential to the average worker overall but right okay so let's talk turf let's talk turf all right so (laughs) i didn't summarize all the turf arguments here but basically what what if i recall the opinion was saying about turf and feel keep me honest here is that the women were forced during games in the united states where the u.s soccer federation had control over the games to pay play a higher percentage or higher number of games on turf which is viewed as a bad thing because turf is typically not as good for your knees and joints and can lead to more injuries than Mm -hmm. the men. Mm -hmm. And the court looked at the reasons that the men gave, and I'm trying to remember exactly what those were uh, for why, or not that the men gave, but the U S soccer Federation gave Mm -hmm. for why they had more grass for the men's games. And the court thought that those arguments were legit, legit. And I'm trying to remember what they were. Do you remember off the top of your head? No. I, part of it was convenience, I believe, and yeah, changing I'm, the turf. I'm and trying to pull they up wanted the case to here. save it for more important games, et cetera. So. Yeah. So the court bought that argument by the, by the U, U.S. Soccer Federation when it came to – so granted summary judgment for U.S. soccer on turf – and field mm-hmm. service surfaces. What's interesting then is that we have this charter flight question that comes oh, right charity. after that. And that to me, so basically what it said is that the men got more flights chartered because <laughs> they felt they had. They, right, <laughs> effect, that's right. Because effectively, because I was trying to think of a snarky way to say it, and you, you beat me to it. They felt sad. And because so well, because they weren't doing great, especially in the lead up to the 2018 World Cup when they were they were screwing the pooch and they just couldn't seem to get over the hump in terms of qualifying. And they had some games that were like four days apart 
And instead of having them fly commercially, they would they chartered extra flights because they needed the extra time and rest. Mm-hmm. And the court Especially looked at that, that. Flight to Ireland, yeah, it was so yeah. sad. So sad. Uh, and in fact, part of the part of it was that like the alternative was that they were all flying business class, which arguably is even better than a charter flight. So, <laughs> um, you know, in terms of comfort and convenience and. Anyway, I, so I don't know. I've watched enough Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Those charter flights look okay. <laughs> it depends on the charter flight, and I, these charter flights that I see, you know, they're they're spread out at least, but they're basically like coach. But, oh, okay. but they each get their own row, <laughs> as opposed to they each get their own reclining, you know, spacious mm-hmm. Learjet. Anyway, um, so the court found that to be an issue of fact for a jury to look at to say, was this actually treated differently or not? Mm-hmm. Um, I read those two sections and was kind of like, they both sound like BS to me. And I'm struggling to understand how the court sliced that so finely. Um, I would have easily granted, not granted summary judgment on either of these claims and let it go to a trial. Mm-hmm. Well, and that puts us in a really strange position, right? Is we have a triable fact on the charter flight, which means this case isn't necessarily immediately appealable to the Ninth Circuit. They technically have to go to trial on the charter flights before they're able to argue this in front of the Ninth Circuit, unless this judge grants them an interlocutory appeal and allows them to go to the Ninth Circuit for appeal on the equal pay issue. Which is a fairly unusual step. Usually they wait for all issues to be resolved before allowing appeals to take place, uh, unless it's something that that the case can't really progress on without the appeal to resolve some issue. Um, they typically deny it. Now, this case is high profile enough that maybe that's a little different here. Mm-hmm. I don't know what will happen. Um, when we were prepping before we got before we started recording, you you made a a, a good point that you know, if you're the 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 women's team, you're going to want to appeal this as quickly as you can, get it in front of the Ninth Circuit, especially before the current president replaces even more of those liberal Ninth Circuit justices. Uh, you're going to want to get in front of a, a, a Ninth Circuit panel uh, that's left-leaning, that's going to be more open to hearing your claim uh, than maybe some other circuits would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I agree with you there. The question I have is, what is their opportunity or chance for success on appeal? Oh, that's a toss-up. It's hard to over- appeal an SJ and be successful on it. However, this Ninth Circuit, just in, I think it's called the Rizzo decision, just held that uh, salary history can never be another factor, a factor other than sex under the Equal Pay Act. So they're fresh off of knowing the ins and outs of the Equal Pay Act. And so it is. it behooves them to get in front of those same kinds of judges who've just spent a significant amount of time with that kind of jurisprudence. So I think it makes sense to try to do the interlocutory appeal, but it's up to this particular judge to grant that decision. They can't, he's not just going to let them necessarily. So. I agree. And, uh, you know, one thing I think about is that the, the justices on appeal can only accept the factual record that's part of the case. So they they can look at that factual record and say, did this judge ignore something? Did, did the judge ignore an argument? Was there an error in reasoning on the law or the application of the facts to the law? But they can't go and collect other facts to put in. And so this comes mm-hmm. down to a question of the briefing, which neither of us have, have seen or read, to say, how much of that briefing did the factual record recited here in this case, in this opinion, how much of it was included? How much of it was overlooked? Was Are there arguments that the plaintiffs can make on appeal that are still part of the record or not? And we don't have a picture into that. I, I think it's pretty low probability that there's a lot of stuff they can point to that they haven't already put forth in, in their pleadings. But then I'll make one caveat to that which is knowing justices and their relative political leanings. If there's a liberal panel and they want them, they want to find in favor of the women, they'll find a way. 
and same if not, true within conservatives. Then. And right, and the same true on the conservatives. I'm not trying to call out one side or the other yeah. when it comes to that, but um, I I think this would be one of those situations that's ripe for a a split depending on your ideological lines, and mm-hmm. you know I think that this judge, again, I'm not I don't know anything specific. I'm just playing to the percentages here. This judge was a Bush one appointee and found in favor of the defendants on summary judgment. That doesn't, mm-hmm. that doesn't shock my pants off. Well, and it, it also doesn't shock me that there were legitimate, coherent arguments in briefs on both sides that were ignored by the judge. That, I mean, that happens to all of us. I've written plenty of summary judgment sure. motions on behalf of defense and judges go, bah, Bishop doesn't know what she's talking about. Or I'm just going to ignore her over here. And then I sit in my office going, oh, right? right. So there is that opportunity for an appellate court to look at those arguments as well. And we don't know specifically what they were. What I'd be looking at trying to play up is how can you have equality with two different bargaining units for doing the same thing when those bargaining units are split by a protected class? That's that's an argument that, at least for me, I find fairly compelling to being able to say, like, <laughs> Actually, you can't have equality or equity here unless they effectively have the same kind of deal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, agree. Awesome. All right. Wow. I think we picked this apart. Um, <laughs> uh, we will keep everybody updated on this I, as we hear more about what's going on and uh, on appeal and and all that. I'm certain there will be an appeal of some sort. Mm-hmm. So, we I will. Oh, yeah, according to what the women's team has tweeted, they have all, nearly every one of them has tweeted something about how, you know, we've never given up a fight and we don't plan on doing it now. So there will be an appeal. So I hope they do. I hope that there's a lot more law and interesting discussion to come out of this. And I hope that they get their equal pay. That is, that's where we both land on this. And, and you know, mm-hmm. we look at this dispassionately as, as attorneys and see the court's reasoning, but, uh, we both say, you know, equal pay. Let's get there. Pay yep. the women the same amount as the men. Yep. Yes, please. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Kate. This was fun. Uh, we will be back uh, in a few days with our next regular episode, which this is replacing on <laughs> on Monday. So um, uh, we'll we'll be talking to y'all soon. Yeah. Thank you. All Bye, right. guys. Bye. Bye.